So I thought I would begin by giving you a little bit of a story from Craig and my marriage. That's always a scary thing to do. Not sure I want to let you in like that, but I think maybe it could be helpful. Um, so anyways, and it's always just easier sometimes to just go ahead and write it out. So that's what I did. When Craig and I were dating, he had an old 53 Ford that was parked in his parents' driveway. As a result of the influence of three uncles who collected old cars, he bought it as a project car with, of course, he had these grand hopes that he was going to fix it all up and make it all cool and drive this little thing around town. We were only kids at the time. I was 17 and he was 18. Over the course of a couple of years, he often used his meager paychecks to buy various parts for the car. So, of course, I'm watching this happening as he's doing this. And I'm thinking, I really like this guy, but what is this car? So as our relationship progressed and then headed toward marriage, I finally decided to put my foot down. I told him he had to pick between marrying me or keeping the car. I was learning submission in the best ways, even before we got married. <laughs> I said, basically, it's one or the other, because you can't have both. He most certainly could not have both because I wasn't going to marry him unless he got rid of the car. So he picked me and sold the car. Obviously, I'm standing here. <laughs> um, anyways, I was relieved and thought this was the end of his old car interest. Little did I know it was really only the beginning. Less than a year into our marriage, we needed a second car, and he discovered he could purchase an old car fairly inexpensively. So we scraped up whatever money we could find and bought an early 60s baby blue Ford Falcon. It actually served him decently well for a few years, but when our family began to grow, it no longer met our needs. With no air conditioning, that was just not working in Southern California in the summer, with no air conditioning and no seat belts for car seats, he was forced to sell it, and you can imagine my joy. <laughs> Yay, we're done with the old cars. Fast forward about five years, we moved. The kids were a bit older and we had a little bit more money. This time, he bought a little red Mercury Comet for $1,000. It needed a little work, but he imagined it would be a fun little car to enjoy. I absolutely could not believe it. I was so upset. You're getting another car, and this time we don't even need it. Like, this is just a toy. Another old car. I had no place in my heart or mind to understand this interest. Everything about it screamed, in my mind, it entirely screamed of stupidity. Why would you do this? I am practical to the nth degree I, with everything. Like, you use it or you don't keep it, whatever. That's not how my husband was feeling about things. So, uh, everything about it screamed of stupidity. I was angry, but I knew I needed to submit. Purchasing an old car wasn't sinful, so I had no basis to put my foot down. So what happened in my heart? Instead, I was angry, and it just kind of sat there. So the little car sat in the garage for two years because he was too busy with work and church and raising a family to have any time for hobbies. When, he decided, when we decided to move out here, he was again forced to sell his little car. We just didn't have the space to move it with us. Again, you can imagine my response. Seems to be a pattern, right? <laughs> he gets it, I get mad. He gets rid of it, I rejoice. So again, I rejoiced and thought, surely this must be the end of the car adventures. We're leaving California, going, you know, turning over a new leaf, going to a new state. The old car thing is over. So we moved and settled into Tennessee, and I truly thought the idea of an old car was something of the past. However, seven years later, his grandma passed away, leaving us some money. All of a sudden, the idea of an old car was back on the table. You can imagine my heart. I was furious. Wouldn't this topic ever die? Apparently not. He took a chunk of the money and set it aside so he can find an old car, but this time he wanted a convertible. I was hopeful that he couldn't find what he wanted and maybe he would give up. And I specifically prayed to that end. But one warm Saturday in early July, he informed me he had found a bright turquoise 62 Mercury Comet convertible in Kentucky and asked me if I would make the trek with him to go pick it up. So, again, what was I doing? Seething. Only this time I had to be involved. 
Not only did I not want the car, but I was the one who had to help him get it. Off we went on an eight-hour round-trip journey to get the car. I hardly talked to him the whole drive, and my mind raged at him the whole drive back. Like, just, you know how your mind goes. I was so angry. I just let the sin overtake my mind. I accused his decision, listing numerous ways I had determined that he was being sinful because that was the only way I could justify it. Like, surely this must be sinful. If I hate it that much, it must be sinful. So I accused him in my mind, like I didn't say this out loud to him, but in my mind, I'm accusing him of selfishness, of foolishness, of irresponsibility, of misprioritizing, being a stumbling block to others, anything I could think of. And I truly had convinced myself this was a sinful decision. We basically got to a place where we never discussed the car because inevitably it ended in an argument. He could never see it from my perspective and I could never see it from his perspective. In every other way, we had a great relationship, but not when it came to the topic of the car. About three or four years into owning this little car, the Lord began to work on my heart. I began to see that all my accusations were a result of my own preferences. Craig wasn't being sinful in purchasing or owning an old car. In fact, he never would have bought it if it wasn't for his money that he got from his grandma. It wasn't like he was even being frivolous. Instead, I realized that I was selfish. I was unkind. I was contentious. I was fearful. I was afraid of what other people would think. Of course, the fear of man. I was unloving and I was unsubmissive in this area. My husband was not the one at fault. I was the one at fault. Over time, as I processed through the layers of sin in my heart, I eventually confessed my sin to Craig and admitted that the issue was mine and not his. I still had different priorities and preferences than him, but I no longer expected him to conform to my desires. He was free to do whatever he wanted with the car, and I was free from the sin that that I had held on to so fiercely. So, ten years later, guess what? We still have that little car. And I can honestly say that the Lord has truly helped me to lay aside my sinful responses to it. And I'm actually at peace with it. And I am happy to say I can submit joyfully to him with his little car. But man, oh man. Okay, so like I don't know exactly what the time frame would be on that. Maybe six years ago, seven years ago. So I've been married 30 years. I'm embarrassed to even tell you this. So how many years of hating the car and being rebellious in this was I to this car and to his desire for it? And that's not right. And so that's why we're going to talk about submission to our husbands tonight because you guys need to know these things and respond rightly so you aren't 23 years into a marriage just going, oh, okay, well, I'm not being submissive here. That illustration, that, ooh, that illustration may seem a little bit petty to some of you because, after all, it's just an old car, right? It's, it doesn't have super significant repercussions for children or other people and things like that. But I thought about several different things here and other reasons why maybe we are unwilling to submit to our husbands. So I have kind of a little list that I'll go ahead and share with you. And perhaps you might say something like this. I can't possibly submit to him in the financial decision he wants to make because it might destroy us. I can't possibly submit to him by going back to work because I have babies I need to care for. I can't possibly submit to him by going on that mission trip. After all, I have no desire and the bugs are terrible. I can't possibly submit to him by putting my children in public school. I can't possibly submit to him by homeschooling my children. That was my attitude in the early days. I can't possibly submit to him by buying that car, by going to that small group. It gets real practical here, right? Like even something as small as small group. By moving out of state, by going on vacation with his parents. 
when he lets our kids watch those kind of movies, now we're getting really personal, right? When he insists it's okay for my teen to have a phone and I don't want them to have a phone, when he continually neglects to care for my needs, because, and I can't possibly submit to him because he doesn't love me like Christ loved the church. We can come up with reason after reason after reason after reason why we shouldn't have to submit to our husbands. And yet the fact of the matter is, is that God has called us to submit to them unless they are asking us to be sinful, to do something that is sinful. God calls us to submit to our husbands. And we don't want to. And that's why it's so difficult. So what I thought I would do, and this is uh, beginning on your outline here, I thought I would first just give you some general principles of submission that we see in the Bible, because I really do think this is very helpful. When we consider God is not only just telling us as women, nobody else in the world has to submit, but you need to submit to your husbands. We're the only ones. It's not that way at all. And we'll see the pattern throughout scripture is that we all have positions of submission one way or the other that God requires of us to establish his authority and his order. So the first one, and I'm just going to go through this really quick because I'm just trying to kind of lay a foundation for you. So number one, church body to leaders. Hebrews 13, 17, 13, 17, 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. So number two, we have the employee who must submit to the employer. And Titus 2.9, bond slaves be subject to their own masters and everything. And obviously we don't have the slave-master relationship today, so that would more apply in the workplace, those principles. Number three, younger men to elders. 1 Peter 5.5, 5, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe, your, clothe yourself with humility toward one another. And then number four, all believers to one another. So Ephesians 5.21 says, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So here's the thing, as you're seeing the pattern, we are to be submitting even just to one another, not striving for our own way, because what is the real issue of submission? Why is it that we struggle to submit to our husbands? Because we want our own way. And if you remember back to the very, very first meeting that we had, you remember the whole example that I gave about the tent and my husband wanted to leave that night and I didn't want to. And so I was fighting against it. That was a whole issue of not submitting because ultimately I wanted what I wanted more than I wanted what he wanted. It was, it was driven by selfishness. And so even in the church, we are called to submit one to another because that demonstrates our love and our preference for other people. So it's not even just within marriage. This is how we function with one another as well. So number five, all believers are to submit to Christ. So Ephesians 5.24, the church is subject to Christ. And then number six, all believers to governing authorities. So 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14 says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as to one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. So you can see that we are all called in one way or another to submit in some place in life. And this is critical that we understand that, as I already said. Clearly, Scripture's instruction to submit is not limited just to us as wives. As we have observed, it is a characteristic that should define all Christians. However, God has specifically singled out wives to submit to their husbands. So, on your outline... Oh... I'm not sure if your numbers are the same as my numbers. Is it Roman numeral two on yours? Yeah. Okay. Mine says one, so I might get a little confused here. So submit to your husband. 
And of course, we have our two passages here that we're going to, specific passages that we're going to look at. Ephesians 5, 22 through 24. And actually, I think you guys have already memorized this. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands. You guys aren't looking at the passage, but do you know what the last line says? In everything. (laughs) So this means that when your husband wants to leave vacation a day early, in everything includes that. This means when your husband wants to buy an old car, in everything includes that. What is it that you wrestle with? And those are, you know, kind of a little more silly, dramatic examples, but this gets very um, tedious. It gets very pointed, the things that we are unwilling to submit to our husbands. And so we need to be thinking, what are those things that I wrestle with? Because God has given him a position that requires him to lead and requires me to follow where he's leading. Does that mean, of course, that our husband's going to lead perfectly? No, they aren't. And they're going to fail. They're going to make foolish decisions at time, especially, you know, sometimes I think about these young, these young husbands, your, some of your husbands. And I think about, like Craig and I, he's always a part of my studying. We're always discussing stuff. So I was talking to him about it and just reminding ourselves of going back 20 or 25 years and remembering like the knowledge that we had at that time, the knowledge he had at that time. He wasn't raised in a Christian family. Um, he did not, he, he wasn't raised in a good church. So he had almost nothing to, that, that would be an, a good example for him to follow. He had to read books. He had to study. He had to figure it out for himself. And even the churches that we were in until we got here were not good churches that, that taught those kind of things. So he had to study that. Do you think that he was making the best decisions for a lot of those years? I mean, he was trying. He was doing the best he could. But if you don't have knowledge... If you don't have experience, if you don't have an example, of course you're not going to make perfect decisions. Now, let me ask you, how well do you submit? Like, do you just have this all wrapped up and you are the best submitter ever that there was? Probably not. You are having to learn to submit as well because you've never been, like, especially if you're young, you've never been married before. You're trying to figure out, like, what does this look like? How do I submit? When is it okay not to? When can I talk to him? When can we disagree? So you're striving to figure out how to do your your role correctly, and he is also striving to figure out his role. And so you need to give him grace to be able to fail, and you need to be able to give him the um, freedom to fail and try again by your support and your love and your kindness and your encouragement. Because, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but remember that God is sovereign and he leads you through the imperfect leading of your husband. And because he's sovereign, even when your husband makes decisions that are either different than yours or even foolish, even sinful, God is directing your life through those decisions that your husband is making that affect you. And he is doing it for good in your life to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. And as soon as we forget that, we kick back against the leadership of our husband. So we have to remind ourselves of that all the time. The word subject means to arrange under or to obey, to submit to one's control, to yield absolutely to one's admonition or advice. So there we go. This is what we're supposed to be doing. As we consider the importance of this instruction, there are a couple of important phrases from Paul's instruction that we need to keep in mind. So uh, going back to our Ephesians, if we remember what he said, he's got a few phrases in there. So a wife is to submit to her own husband. You are not to submit to my husband. I'm not to submit to your husband. We each have our own husband, and that's who we submit to. And I know that this is very familiar, 
but we just have to make sure we're covering all the bases so that we're all on the same page. So also, her submission to her husband is ultimately to the Lord. This is critical. We can never, ever forget this. Our submission to our husband is to our husband, but ultimately it's to the Lord. So going back to the tent example or the car example, as I am submitting to my husband as he's making these decisions, even though all these years with all these old cars, I am kicking back against that. But as I have learned to submit to his decision in that, what am I actually doing? Yes, I'm submitting to Craig. He's just really the beneficiary of my submission because ultimately the only reason that I began to be okay with it is because the Lord changed my heart because I, I realized I was ultimately submitting to God because it was as to the Lord, not just as to my husband. So then the third one, the church's submission to Christ provides the example of how how we should submit or how she, the wife, should submit to her husband. And if we took any time really to meditate on that, that's a pretty tall example of what God calls the church to submit to Christ. I mean, this is like where unity is as the church submits to the head who is Christ. All these things are so important. But that's, again, just a little nutshell to keep us all on the same page. And so continuing... A on your outline, we're going to talk about the characteristics of submission. What does this look like? So I'm going to draw this from 1 Peter 3, 1 through 4. It says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Again, it says own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, when it, when it says disobedient to the word, it is talking about those who are unbelievers. So it says... Be submissive to your own husbands, even if any of them are disobedient to the word. They may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. You can dress up and look really nice for your husband and be very beautiful. But if your character is not Christ-like, you are not going to be attractive to your husband. Craig has told me over and over again, I think I've said this before, but he says, I just love it when you smile. Well, guess what? When I'm mad about an old car, guess what I'm not doing? Or when I'm mad because I have to leave vacation early, I'm crying. I'm not smiling. Because... Smiling usually indicates a pleasant heart, one that is right with the Lord and right with our husbands, or at least it's striving, right? (laughs) Because we don't tend to smile when we have a sour attitude. And so really what Peter is doing here is he's making the contrast. You can get all dressed up. You can do all this stuff. But you know what? If you do not have a quiet and gentle spirit, it's for nothing. So the first one is to be chaste and pure. So ESV translates it like this. When they see your respectful and pure conduct. So chaste really really means pure from every fault or immaculate. So the wife who possesses chaste behavior is one who lives in a manner that is consistent with Scripture. So if you want to know, what does this mean? How can I be chaste? It means that your life is a reflection of scripture. She doesn't respond to her husband's sin in fear or anger or other forms of sin. She is sensible, self-controlled, patient, and kind, even when her husband provokes her. Because when our husbands sin, what does that become to us? A provocation most of the time. And so... We have to, even in those times, have that chaste conduct, that pure conduct that reflects the principles and truths that are in Scripture. So number two, she's respectful. So to be respectful means to have reverence or respect. never like it when they use the word in the definition. 
uh, respect for authority, rank, or dignity. So the wife is to respect her husband because his rank or position comes from God. He may not earn respect as he ought to, but she must show him respect because of his God-ordained position in her life. And I'm not going to pretend that this is easy because for women that struggle in their marriages with husbands who do not live in a manner that, that earns respect, it is very, very hard to practice this. And yet, that's exactly what God calls us to do. And you respect them not because they are worthy of it, but because God has given them the position. And because of that, we respect that. We can even think about that in governmental circles, right? So we may or may not like who God has put into office in the government, say the president. Well, are we going to be disrespecting him? Well, we shouldn't, even if we disagree with his morals, with his policies and all of that. We should not disrespect him because he has been given a position of authority by God. And because of virtue of that, that position, we respond in respect to him, not because he has earned it. The same is true with our husbands. Now, our prayer is that our husbands are seeking to please the Lord so that it makes it easier for us to respect them. But even men who are striving to please the Lord oftentimes have areas in their lives that are not entirely ones that we can respect as well. And so we have to make sure that we are keeping our hearts right because God has commanded it. So if we are not respecting our husbands, what are we also not doing? We are not having that chaste behavior because when God commands us to be respecting our husbands, that means that if we are obeying it, we do have that pure conduct that reflects the truths of Scripture. But if we're disrespecting him, we don't have that, that holy, pure conduct, and so we are not mirroring the truths of Scripture. So number three, we have a gentle spirit or meek Meekness toward God is that disposition of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good, and therefore without disputing or resisting. Meekness toward evil people means knowing God is permitting the injuries they inflict, that he is using them to purify his elect, and that he will deliver his elect in his time. Gentleness or meekness is the opposite to self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. The gentle person is not occupied with self at all. So I, I don't know if you heard, well, let me read that second to last sentence again, because this is really important. We're actually going to talk about this in a minute. So it says, gentleness or meekness is the opposite to self-assertiveness and self-interest. So remember, this is why we don't submit, because we are practicing selfishness. So then it says, it stems from trust, this gentleness, it stems from trusting God's goodness and control over the situation. If we are going to submit to our husbands well, like I said, we're going to talk about this in just a minute, but if we're going to submit well, we need to understand and be confident in God's goodness, and we need to understand and be confident in God's sovereignty, God's control. Because if we wrestle in those areas, we will not submit because we will have completely forgotten as to the Lord, that really important phrase. So the number four, quiet. This is another characteristic of submission. It refers to someone who is still tranquil or peaceable. A wife with a quiet spirit is one who is at rest in her heart. She is not agitated, anxious, or irritated. She can be at peace with her circumstances because she believes God is good and sovereign over the details of her life. This does not mean her circumstances are easy. It means that when she faces difficulties in her marriage, she can trust that God is doing her good even if it isn't outwardly evident. Again, sovereignty and goodness 
We have got to understand that. So when we wrestle to submit, we have to ask ourselves, what is it about God that I am not understanding, that I am not practicing? Because always our sin goes, but we can trace it back to a lack of knowing and loving God. And so it's very important. This is why we're constantly saying, be in the word, study the word, know the word, because that's where we find out who our God is. So B, motivation for submission. So when we talk about submission, and actually I've not taught it this way before, but as I've been meditating and pondering and thinking about this, I realized how critical. So a lot of times when we hear top um, sermons or lessons or whatever, the, the topic of submission, we hear all the things, right? Like we should do this, like all the things I just was telling you. Here's the characteristic of it. Here's the reason why we don't. But do we stop to think about our motives? What is it that motivates us to submission? Because we can have all the facts. We can know all the things we're supposed to do. But if we struggle with the right motivation, we're not going to do it. Facts alone are not going to be helpful. What is it that motivates us to submit to our husbands? So, first of all, understanding God's love. So Titus 3, and I've got several, I'm kind of going to give you a bunch of passages here, but I really want you to hear this from Scripture. I just feel like it's important, and I know like this may be a little bit much, but that's all right, I'm going to do it anyways. So Titus 3, 4 through 6, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. This, of course, we know. This is the gospel primer, right? Just keep going back to the gospel and going back to the gospel to remind ourselves of the love of God that was poured out in Jesus Christ on our behalf. So as I was pondering this, I was thinking about a few things. So think about trust. One of the reasons why we struggle to submit is because we don't trust that our husband is is doing us good. But ultimately, who do we really not trust? Because we submit to our husbands as to the Lord. So if we're wrestling to trust, it really is an issue of not trusting the Lord. Trust is born out of love. We won't submit if we don't trust God, and we won't trust God unless we are confident in his love for us. Unless we know that God has our best interest in mind, we won't trust him, and if we don't trust him, we won't obey him. This is absolutely critical that we understand this. And again, this is why we get into the word, why we study the character of God. And then uh, Romans 8, 31 and 32. So this on this whole idea of the love of God. So he says this. This is just one of my favorite couple of verses here. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? So we doubt God in our marriages when God has already given us the most important thing. He's given us his son. He's given us salvation. So because of that, he's given us the best possible thing that we could have, a savior. He's redeemed us. So do we think now that he's just going to throw us aside and give us scraps? Make our lives intentionally difficult? No. He's already given us the best. So of course, everything from, from the hand of God is good for us. And of course, we know Romans 8.28 is right above that, that he does good to those who love him. But it's critical that we understand the love of God for us because especially in difficult things, 
And, and I don't ever want to make light of marriages. I don't know where all of your marriages are. I don't know if some of you struggle. And so I don't ever want to make light of having to submit to a man that is difficult, that is not walking with the Lord, that is not pursuing Christ as he ought to. That is incredibly, incredibly difficult. But you can still do it because you have the truths of scripture. You have the love of God that has been poured out on you through Jesus Christ in salvation. And you have been given the Holy Spirit that will enable you to live in a manner that is obedient to scripture and submission to your husband, even if it's difficult. Now I will say, you may need to get counsel. You may need to find a woman that will walk with you in these things to remind you of these truths. And guess what? That's exactly why we're here. So that we can link arms together and encourage one another and help one another in these places that are difficult. But I do want you to keep in mind, like, yes, I talk about the old car and I say it kind of silly. But it's so, so much more than that. And so don't let little examples like that make you think that I don't understand the weight of this truth. So growing in your understanding of God's love is going to come as you obey him by faith. So God gives us opportunities over and over and over again to practice obedience to his word. And as we are obedient to the things that he calls us to be obedient in, he strengthens us, helps us do it, and guess what? We see that his promises are true. We see, we experience the fact that this God is living and he does love me because he is helping me. And that builds our trust in the fact that he is good and he does love me. But we have to be willing to put forth the effort. We have to be willing to work out our salvation, right? It's, it's work. But when we do it, we see God meet us in that place and we experience his love. So number two, understanding of God's goodness so Chronicles 16, 34 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is ever everlasting. You, there are so many verses that talk about the fact that God is good. The psalmist said it over and over again. God is good. And of course, what I already mentioned, Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. I never thought I would think it was a good thing that my husband would buy multiple old cars. But it was good. Do you know why it was good? Because it drove me to humility and recognizing my sin. God used that to bring about a changed heart in me. What are the things that you are struggling to submit to your husband in? God is good in bringing those things into your life because he will use them to conform you into the image of his son. Psalm 103, 1 through 5, and I just included this because it's just so beautiful. It's like a balm to your soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. If you wrestle to believe that God is good, you take Psalm 103 and you meditate on that and consider God's goodness to you. We serve a good God that does not give us snakes and stones. No, he gives us good things. 
and Psalm 27:13. I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. If you are living in a marriage in which you struggle to submit to your husband because he fails to lead well, this principle is vitally important. You will despair unless you believe that God is good and is doing you good in the midst of your marriage. You have to believe that. God is doing you good even in those things. And this gets really hard when you have children. Because if your husband is not leading in the way that is leading your children to the Lord, or he is setting a bad example in some ways, remember that that one thing I said? He's like all for giving your kid a cell phone in, in high school, or he's not careful about what they watch or listen to. You may really, really struggle with that to submit to his leadership because you are looking at it saying, this screams of ungodliness. How can I submit to this? But let me tell you something. If you in your sinfulness refuse to submit to that, you make your husband's disobedience that much worse. Now your child has nobody to look to as a good example. It's critical that we obey God's word as it is given to us and whatever sphere or realm that is, whatever relationship that is, because our sin only makes situations worse. It never fixes anything. So number three, possessing a steadfast knowledge and hope in God's sovereignty. So that's what we need to have, the steadfast knowledge and a hope in the sovereignty of God. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than yours. Because sometimes we question, why would my husband not do such and such? Why am I called to submit to him when he leads like that or when he makes that decision? God is working his will in our lives through our husbands, even when they are imperfect, even when it's difficult, because his thoughts and his ways are higher than ours. And so we trust him and obey him. Isaiah 45, 6 and 7, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun, that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. God is entirely sovereign over everything. He's in control of everything. Absolutely everything. Even the difficult things that come into our lives. Even the things that rub against our will and our relationships with our husbands. But again, we must choose to be submitting to our husbands because it pleases the Lord. And remember what Job said, just to kind of sum up this idea of God's sovereignty. Job 121, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I don't know what kind of a husband the Lord has given you. I pray that is one that is striving. But even if he's striving, he's not going to strive perfectly. Do you live without sin? Are you the perfect wife? No, none of us are. And so we need to keep that in mind. And even when our husband leads in a way that maybe we would not prefer, what if he leads in a way that wipes out your savings? Are you going to be okay with that? Are you going to submit under that with a heart that loves him? Because what does Job say? The Lord gave and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The problem is, is that when our husband makes a decision that brings really negative consequences to us, we don't stop to think about the fact that that came from the hand of the Lord. We look at our husbands and go, why did you do that? You've made my life hard. He could never make our lives hard unless God allowed it. And God allows it 
for our good because he is good to conform us to the image of Christ. So number four, possessing a desire. So remember, this is motivation to being submissive. We have to possess a desire to avoid dishonoring God's word. Titus 2, 3 through 5. This is, you know, kind of our go-to verse here. But it's really, really important. And if we don't pay attention to the last line, we forget the thing that really motivates all of this. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands. Submitting is loving. Love their husbands, love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. When we are not subject to our husbands, the word of God is dishonored in our lives. It's critical that we understand what is going on because that should drive us to obedience to God's word because we don't want it to be dishonored in our lives. We don't want to be a poor reflection of what a Christian is or what the word of God is. We call ourselves a Christian. We quote scriptures. And who's watching if you are a young woman? Who is watching all the time? Your children. Maybe you can hide it in like public circles, but your children see if you are not submitting and yet you go to Bible study and you go to church and you serve in the nursery and you help with this and you help with that and yet you do not submit to your husband, you are dishonoring the word of God. And how does that affect children as they grow up? Well, I don't think scripture really is all that important because my parents clearly don't think it's all that important. These have really serious ramifications. So number five, possessing, we have to possess a desire to cultivate a heart that is precious to God. This to me is just so sweet. It really is. So 1 Peter 3, 4, we already read this but I'll read it again. But let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. Did, did you ever stop to think about that before? When you have a gentle and quiet spirit, when you are submitting to your husband and loving him, God looks at that and says, that is precious. I love that. That should motivate us as well that we would be pleasing to the Lord to such a degree that he can say that is precious, that is valuable, that is beautiful. So we have to keep moving. So B, reasons wives fail to practice submission. And I'm, we're running out of time. I told you I was not going to finish this. But anyways, I'm going to try and go through this a little bit fast. So number one is the curse. And we just have to understand this. So that's why I'm hitting on it very quickly. Genesis 3:16. To the woman he said, so remember this is after the fall, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So John MacArthur said this, sin caused the curse and the curse hit marriage right at the heart. The woman, as a result of the curse, seeks to rule and not submit. She wants control. That is the fallen woman's tendency. And the man also cursed is given to overpowering the woman, crushing her and subduing her. So as a result of the curse, the thing that we should be doing in our marriages, like he said, what did he say? The curse hit marriage right at the heart. But what is the thing that brings redemption? Jesus Christ, salvation, the Holy Spirit, using the word of God to teach us the truths so that we would know the truths of scripture and the power to live it out breaks the power of the curse. It's amazing. So we have to keep that in mind so that we are living according to the truths of scripture. So number one, these, oh, this is number two. Oh man, my numbers got really messed up. So reasons wives fail to practice submission. Number two, thinking unbiblical thoughts. So 
Of course, we know that when we are filling our mind with junk and accusing our husband, like remember some of the examples that I gave you, remember my drive home from Kentucky? Seething at my husband, coming up with all these accusations, just, just feasting on sinful thoughts, basically is what I was doing. We have to not allow ourselves to do that. And actually, I have a quote here. This lady, she writes this. Left to themselves, thoughts go Thoughts often go dumpster diving, digging through fleshly things, carnal things, earthly things, untrue, ignoble, unjust, impure, unloving, and unkind things. The dumpster is always full of this stuff. Your own past sins and failures, the sins of others, bitterness, worries, and lusts. And then we wonder why we are discontent, worried, envious, lustful, bitter, anxious, or fearful. But we've been feeding on this stuff from the dumpster all day long, week after week, year after year. No wonder we have a head full of troubles. This is why God tells us to put our minds on better things. I know sometimes it feels so delightful to think negative, sinful thoughts about our husbands. When they cross our will, it just feels good and it seems good and we feel so justified to do it. Don't ever do it. Don't ever do it. And keep that example of the dumpster. You allow those thoughts to come into your mind and you're just scraping down at the goo and the garbage and the filth at the bottom of the dumpster. And this is what is driving your responses to your husband. It's horrible. No wonder we struggle to submit. We have to guard our thoughts. Number three, I think this is three, Thinking too highly of ourselves, one of the greatest obstacles wives wrestle against is their own arrogant attitude. We are convinced we know what is best. We are relentlessly determined that, we, that our way is right. We are quick to attribute sinful motives to our husband, and we skillfully and shamefully do exactly what Romans 12.3 instructs us not to do. So what is Romans 12.3? I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. What was I doing with the whole car thing? I had entirely elevated myself and justified myself in my sin. I truly thought I was right. That's what's so awful and shameful about it. I had elevated myself in my own mind to my desires being right, and his, who were not sinful, had become sinful to me because I viewed myself as more important than my husband. When we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, we lack sound judgment that will enable us to think rightly concerning our husbands. So number four, misunderstanding God's established order of authority. So 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. So we have this wonderful chain of authority that God lays out in his scripture. And even if our husbands are disobedient to the word, we're still, by obeying God's word, being obedient to God who is over our husbands. And so we have to keep that in mind so that we don't lose sight of what God is actually doing. Number four, ignoring personal sin while magnifying his own sin. So Matthew 7, 3 and 4 says, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and behold the log that is in your own? It is our natural sinful tendency to extend grace to ourselves while harshly judging others. Perhaps this is most evident within our marriages, right? By fixating on our husband's sin, we tend to downplay our own. It is common for wives to rightly recognize sinful patterns in their husband's life. However, their sinful, self-righteous attitude leads to arrogantly accusing their husbands while ignoring their own sinful response. A wife's contentious, discontent, ungrateful heart is many times excused because she is so intent on criticizing her husband's actions or decisions. God tells us to be content. He tells us to give thanks. How is it that we can possibly think that when we are not doing those things, that we're okay? 
because we lose sight of the fact that we are sinful. And instead of taking this, the log out of our eye, we're picking at the speck in our husband's eye. Is it number six that's fear? Okay. Women are often afraid to follow their husband's lead because they are afraid of the decisions he will make. I think this probably is one of the over... We might kind of struggle with some of these and not others, but I would say this probably strikes at all of our hearts in one way or another, at one time or another. They are afraid of how he will spend money or time or what he will permit the children to do or to not do. But the Apostle Peter addresses this concern. In 1 Peter 3, 5, and 6, so this is after the four verses that we've already read. For in this way in former times the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So here's the explanation. There are three important phrases in this passage that are helpful to understanding submission. Hoped in God. Sorry, I don't have this on your outline, I don't think. Do what is right without, and the third one is without being frightened by any fear. A woman can do what is right by submitting to her husband without fear because her hope is in God. By placing her hope in her heavenly father rather than in her husband or in her circumstances, a wife can submit to her husband without fear, confidently aware that God will, pre- God will care for her and her children. By understanding our role and God's order of authority as we practice submission toward our husbands, it eliminates fear because we know God is sovereignly orchestrating everything in our lives and even in the lives of our children, for his good purpose. It's critical that we understand this. this is, I'm saying that about every point, right? It's so, so important we understand this, stuff, but it really, really is. Take this home and go over the verses and remind yourself that there's parts that you are struggling to grasp. Study out the portions of scripture. So number seven, unbiblical goals. So what are your personal life goals? Do you desire wealth? Are you intent on finding the perfect home? Do you crave acceptance or popularity? Is your your reputation most important? Do you seek leadership in the church? Perhaps you yearn for a perfect family or a husband who is spiritually mature. Or do you simply want life to be the way you want it? That, That sums up everything, right? We just want life to be the way we want it. God's goal for his children is that they would look like Jesus Christ. The following passage of Romans 8:29 says this, for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that Jesus would be the firstborn among many brethren. This is what God is doing in our lives as he is making us look like his son. And the way that he does it is by bringing challenges and difficulties and trials into our lives. And sometimes that comes when our husbands do things differently than us, when they make poor decisions, when they're just oblivious. We need to keep this in mind, that through all those things, God is using that to help us look like his son as we, of course, say, not my will, but your will be done. That's how we look like Christ because that's exactly what Christ said. If we are children of God, then our life's goal should align with God's plan for us, which means we will think, speak, and act like Jesus Christ in all we do. Even in a marriage with a man who is less than perfect, we must work to reflect the character of Christ in our lives. Often marriage is the very tool God uses to accomplish this goal. Your husband is ordained by God as the man to whom you must submit. His sinfulness does not negate his biblical mandate unless he asks you to do something sinful, as I said before. Instead, submitting to your husband in obedience to God's word will actually result in your Christ-likeness. So I think I need to say here as well um, that... 
the point of, of teaching submission is not to pick on our husbands and not to say that they're failing. And I don't in any way want to communicate that, oh, our lives are so hard because we have these rotten... That's not what I'm trying to say. The issue is our hearts more than it is. I mean, they may not be being obedient to Scripture, but the issue with us is our hearts and how we respond. We can give our husbands the greatest opportunity to lead well. And do you know how we do that? By submitting to them, by loving them. This isn't always because they're making life so difficult for us. A lot of times they lead well. Do you follow well? Because as you follow their leadership, you are supporting their authority. You are giving them confidence that they are doing what God has called them to do. You are the, their encourager. Do you remember in Proverbs 31 what it says, the heart of her husband trusts in her? That's because she is encouraging and supporting and submitting to him. We help the, the marriage relationship strengthen and grow as we submit to our husbands. This isn't just a drudgery. This is a delight. When our husbands are walking with the Lord and, and obeying his word and pursuing the church and we come alongside them, that is a beautiful and wonderful, healthy, godly thing that looks like what? Christ and the church. So we tend to always come at submission from this negative angle. And I just want to make sure that I say it's not negative. <laughs> and it's, it's something we still do even if we have great husbands who love the Lord and are striving to please him. And all it does is strengthen and encourage our relationships. So ooh, I need to be done. But last point here biblically confront his sin. And I wanted to include this just because I think it's important. A healthy marriage isn't a perfect marriage because you need to know that submission is not just blind submission and you have to always do it. You can talk to your husband. You can confront him if he is being sinful. You should confront him when he is being sinful. You know him better than anybody else. And so you're going to see those things but you don't do it in bitterness or frustration or unkindness. You do it with a heart that loves him, that wants to see him look like Christ. And so you confront him so that he has the greatest opportunity to repent of his sin and to please the Lord. That's the whole motivation. <clears throat> God has provided a means by which there can be restoration when couples sin against each other. Through humble repentance and forgiveness in both spouses, the marriage can continue to mature and grow. Because confession and repentance aren't always immediate, at times it is necessary to confront one another in their sin. One of the duties of a submissive wife is to humbly admonish her husband when he sins. The goal of biblical confrontation is to bring the sinning person back into a right relationship with God. So scripture outlines this from Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So you think about this when you come to your husband. Okay, if you're going to confront him in sin, you need to have a heart of gentleness. Which, remember from, as we were looking at earlier, that's one of the characteristics of being a submissive wife, having a submissive heart. So it says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. And here's your warning. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Looking at your own heart, evaluating your own heart. There are instances when a sinning husband must be confronted, but it should be done in gentleness using scripture appropriately with a desire to restore him to fellowship with God and, and of course, your, your relationship as well. Depending on the degree and habit of the sin, a wife may need to ask the elders of the church to confront him if he does not respond to her admonition and repentance. So that is something to keep in mind. We, we go to them, and if this is ongoing sin that is not being confessed and, and all of that, then there may be a place where you need to go talk to an elder so that they can confront him. There's a place for that as well. 
If a husband is abusing his wife or his children, this calls for immediate assistance from the elders of the church and even at, at times the local authorities if anyone is in danger. So just always have to cover all of our bases to make sure we get all the different parts because submission is not just a blind response to a very sinful man who is harming a wife and children. Because if a husband is being disobedient, yes, you submit to him, but you can also appeal. And if it's a sinful thing, then you confront him in that sin. And that is good and that is healthy for your marriage, for your family, and for the body of Christ overall. So anyways, that was a lot of stuff. But I hope that you find that your heart is encouraged because God is pleased when we submit to our husbands. Because what, is it, what does scripture tell us? is precious in his sight. Let's pray.